Welcome to American Carnage. This is our first episode in a five-part series on the life and times of the radical abolitionist Captain John Brown. This first episode is titled, Pierced with the Iron. picture the old man's body, dirty, bloodied, and apparently lifeless, as it's dragged across the ground by a contingent of U.S. Marines, all wearing their matching powder blue uniforms. This old man's body, with its long white beard and wrinkled forehead and prominent nose, is being pulled from inside the brick firehouse where he and his raiders made their final stand, and into the yard outside. And when that body emerges, several of the journalists there that day will later say that they for sure thought that John Brown was dead. His head and his neck have been cut by several saber thrusts, bayonets have gashed his torso, the hilt of a sword has been used to bludgeon his head, Men will later find parts of John Brown's scalp and his gray hairs splattered over the brick walls of this firehouse. Just the day before, Brown's hopes of escaping this Virginia town of Harper's Ferry and starting the mass slave insurrection he'd been planning for for years and dreaming of literally for decades, this dream was already largely extinguished. Acknowledging defeat, Brown had sent out one of his sons to wave the white truce flag of surrender. And then the son comes back inside the firehouse, riddled with bullet wounds that have pierced his stomach. And the old man will have to listen for almost an entire day as his 24-year-old boy bled out slowly, wailing and begging for his father or for someone else to put him out of his misery before dying in agonizing pain in his father's arms. And then that same day, as the bullets rained down on this little engine house where Brown and a few of his men still held on to a handful of hostages, the old men will watch as another son, his youngest and his favorite, this one just 20 years old, bookish and tall and handsome, with a pregnant wife waiting for him at home, will also be shot and killed while fighting inside the engine house. Brown will straighten the limbs of this 20-year-old son before removing the military gear from his corpse. But now it's the next day, October 19th, 1859, and the sun is out, and John Brown himself has now been captured by this force of U.S. Marines led by none other than General Robert E. Lee, who would, of course, go on to become the top general of the Confederate Army. And then this old and battered man, who only hours before had just watched two of his sons die, and who himself is only a few weeks away from his own death, will instead miraculously wake up. 
And as he comes to, some of the southern slaveholders that are part of this crowd that's gathered here will shout questions at him, the answers to which historians have been debating endlessly for the last, you know, 100 plus years and without exaggeration are still fiercely debating the answers to, to this very day. And the question the men will shout at this old, hungry, gashed man essentially boil down to, why? Why did you do this? What compelled you to launch an invasion against the U.S. government with literally only a couple dozen men? I have also spent much time trying to figure out the answer to this question. W.E.B. Du Bois, the great black intellectual whose biography of Brown we will be leaning on quite heavily throughout this series, will capture the scene. Du Bois will write, quote, Picture the situation. An old and blood-bespattered man, half dead from the wounds inflicted but a few hours before. A man lying in the cold and dirt, without sleep for 55 nerve-wrecking hours, without food for nearly as long, with the dead bodies of two sons almost before his eyes, the piled corpses of his seven slain comrades near and afar, a wife and a bereaved family listening in vain, and a lost cause, the dream of a lifetime lying dead in his heart. Around him was a group of bitter, inquisitive southern aristocrats and their satellites, headed by one of the foremost leaders of the subsequent secession. Who sent you, these inquisitors insisted. Who sent you? No man sent me, Brown responds. I acknowledge no master in human form, end quote. We will get into extensively why so many people hate John Brown and why even some contemporary historians will argue that he's at least a little insane and why some other contemporary historians who don't think he's insane will still compare him to Al-Qaeda or Timothy McVeigh and why even some people who don't think he's insane and don't think he's like Al-Qaeda or Timothy McVeigh will still think that what he does is unjustifiable morally and quite ethically dubious. But for all the endless back and forth over what John Brown's actions meant and what they represent and what they mean and whether they were justifiable or not, what is remarkable to me is how remarkably simple John Brown's defense of his own actions are, how straightforward his own actual words are when they can pierce through the fog of more than 150 years of endless historical debates. And so again, right, these slaveholders, these southern slaveholders will ask John Brown, who is at this point a bloody, helpless mess, they will ask him, how do you justify these acts? And John Brown will tell his southern interlocutors, quote, you are guilty of a great wrong against God and against humanity, and it would be perfectly right for anyone to interfere with you so far as to free those you willfully and wickedly hold in bondage. I think I did right, and that others will do right who interfere with you at any time and at all times, because I hold that the golden rule, do unto others as ye would that others should do unto you, applies to all. I want you to understand that I respect the rights of the poorest and the weakest of colored people oppressed by the slave system just as much as I do those of the most wealthy and the most powerful. That is the idea that has moved me, and that alone. 
we expected no reward except the satisfaction of endeavoring to do for those in distress and greatly oppressed as we would be done by by them, end quote. Welcome, by the way, to American Carnage. This is our new American History podcast. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. We truly, really appreciate it. My name is Jeff Stein, and I, along with my uh, dear friend, Rolly Amato, have now spent truly an embarrassing amount of time uh, over the last uh, year plus immersed in everything John Brown. We have read more than 15 books on the guy and over a thousand pages of primary source materials. This is uh, the first in what will be a five-part series about Captain John Brown. Brown is born in 1800 in the town of Torrington, Connecticut. He will die in 1859 on the gallows, executed by the state of Virginia for trying to start a slave insurrection in the town of Harper's Ferry, which today is in West Virginia, but was then in the state of Virginia. At the time of John Brown's birth, of course, slavery had already existed in the Americas for about 200 years. In 1859, at the age of 59, Brown and about 20 men are going to lead a raid on the Virginia town of Harper's Ferry in the hopes of starting a mass slave insurrection aimed at ending the institution of slavery. For reasons we will explain at length, if you are willing to stick with us, which I hope you will, Brown's raid will lead directly to the Civil War, which starts less than two years after Brown's execution and which will, of course, accomplish the task that Brown started, which was to end the institution of slavery. I promise if you stay with us, you will get a full accounting of this raid and exactly how it changed the course of American history. Episodes two and three in this series will be about Brown's involvement in the crucial Bleeding Kansas conflict of the 1850s. Episodes four and five will be about everything you ever wanted to know about Harper's Ferry. But the question we wanted to start this series with, the question about John Brown that perhaps I find most important the one that you've just heard him give his answer to, is why does he do this? And the reason I find that question so pressing, the reason I think I've been so interested in it, is because it forces us, or you know, at least forces me, to try to really imagine what I would have been willing to do had I been alive at the time of John Brown. Because, right, just put aside the story of John Brown for a second— Think about what you would have been willing to do if I put you in a time machine and sent you back to early 19th century America. If you put me in that time machine, for instance, I feel pretty confident, I hope the same is true of you at least, that I'm going to do at least some things to confront the institution of slavery. Maybe that's petitioning Congress or voting for the anti-slavery liberty party or writing letters since, you know, Twitter wasn't around to maniacally post on back then. And yet, pretty quickly, I begin to come against some thresholds that I'm not so sure I would have been willing to cross. I mean, take, for instance, the idea of harboring a runaway slave in your basement for a night. The punishment for doing this at the time is going to be six months of imprisonment. I mean, looking back, I certainly like to hope that that's a risk I would have been willing to take, but... To be blunt, the honest answer is I'm really not so sure. 
I mean, I'm not even sure that I'd be willing to spend one day in jail for a cause that I believe in. I, I don't think most people are. And for John Brown, the question of whether you'd spend a night in jail to assist a runaway slave is like almost laughably easy. He is willing to give up that and so much more. I mean, his normal life as a businessman, the safety and security of a wife that by all accounts he loved dearly, the lives not just of one, not just of two, but the lives of several of his children he's willing to sacrifice as part of this cause. And the thing that I think is really interesting to me that we'll be discussing in this episode is that for most of John Brown's life, there is really not a ton of evidence that he is going to be the kind of person who will be willing to give up all these things in the cause of fighting slavery. And so the question I want to ask is, what changes? What is the shift that makes that kind of a man possible? I mean, to be clear, Brown is from a very early age, a radical abolitionist and a racial integrationist, which is a super radical position for the time. At a very young age, maybe 12 or 13, Brown will be sent through the Midwest during the War of 1812, uh, herding cattle for the marching American army. And there's this apocryphal story where Brown spends the night at the home of a stranger where a black slave is being kept. And Brown befriends the boy and they become fast friends. And then that very night that they become friends, Brown will watch in horror as this boy is beaten by his master with a shovel and whatever other tools that this master can get his hands on. And then later as a young man, Brown will uh, assist his dad in helping escape slaves through the Underground Railroad. As a young father himself, Brown and his family will be excommunicated from their church for insisting on allowing uh, freed blacks to sit at the front of the church pews. We can see right already in these early stories some of the seeds of Brown's eventual transformation, the early signs that he's going to be more than just someone who sends letters supporting abolitionism. One of these moments, in fact, um, will come in 1836. Brown, you know, is about in his mid-30s. A huge white mob is going to surround a jail in Missouri where a black cook by the name of Francis J. McIntosh is being held on suspicion of murder. And essentially with the help of law enforcement, who at a minimum just don't do anything to stop this, the white mob will break into the jail And they find this black cook, um, this cook named McIntosh, and they carry him to the edge of the town, tearing at his arms, his legs, and his hair, before tying him to the trunk of a large locust tree and setting the tree on fire. We're told that McIntosh will burn for 20 consecutive minutes. One account of the lynching will state, quote, "'Wrapped in flames,' And though the fire had obliterated the features of his humanity, Macintosh raised his head and spoke out distinctly, saying, No, no, I hear you. I feel as much as any of you. Shoot me, shoot me, end quote. And then, after this lynching, the abolitionist newspaper publisher Elijah P. Lovejoy will print article after article denouncing the lynching 
and calling attention to the fact that even though the perpetrators are well-known, nobody is arrested for this act. Lovejoy, however, will draw the attention of the same mob that lynched Macintosh, and they will destroy four of his printing presses. Every time the mob destroys one, Lovejoy orders a new one until when his fourth and final one arrives, he gets into a gunfight with the mob that shoots and kills him. John Brown will learn of this murder while at a church meeting in Ohio. He's quiet for most of the meeting, brooding on what it all means. But then, after being silent for the duration of the meeting, at the very end, Brown will stand up and raise his right hand and swear to the congregation that he forever consecrates his life to the destruction of slavery. And then Brown will gather his teenage boys at home with his wife, and they gather around the fireplace, and Brown forces them to swear that they too will dedicate their lives to this cause. But really, even after this point, Brown is still mostly just doing the things to fight slavery that I think you or I could imagine ourselves having done on the other end of that time machine, right? Things that seem accessible to us within the context of our normal lives. And Brown does have a pretty normal life. He has 20 kids across two marriages and is quite successful across a range of professions, uh, particularly enjoying a good deal of prosperity as a wool dealer. And then again, as I've said, something is going to shift. And what I want to know is, right, what is the brew? What is the strange alchemy, the right mixture of ingredients that takes this relatively normal abolitionist raising a healthy family with this big business and turns him, you know, even though he's making weird pledges in church and at home sometimes, but what turns that person from looking like what you or I might look like on the other end of the time machine into someone who not only is willing to, but in fact does sacrifice everything for the anti-slavery cause. Because there are a lot of different theories for this, and historians have spent much of the last 150 years yelling at each other about which of these theories is right. For instance, one idea you see kicked around a lot is that Brown sort of becomes jokerified through some mixture of greed, ambition, and personal failure. That if this is like the Marvel movie, right, the supervillain or superhero that Brown becomes is born from the way like a lot of these movies start, right? That it's born through the crucible of a dark and tragic life with tragedy and despair. Because before his attention gets fully turned to slavery, Brown is going to fall on desperately hard times. As I've said, Brown has 20 kids across two marriages. Even for the mid-19th century, this is an exceptionally large family. But nine of Brown's kids will die in childhood. His first wife will die in childbirth. She's buried with a baby. In the panic of 1837, amid a massive nationwide economic downturn, Brown will see his prosperous wool business decimated and his family reduced to dire poverty. Around this time, four of Brown's young children will die of dysentery in rapid succession. Brown writes these heart-rending letters about a kind of mental collapse that he endures while burying his children. To make matters worse, he will spend time in debtor's prison at one particularly low point. In one letter, he will acknowledge about fantasizing about killing himself, quote, I had a strong 
steady desire to die. Brown will write and then underline uh, the word die. And to be fair, right, I mean, this sure seems like the kind of set of tragedies that might be enough to drive anyone to the brink. I think certainly some people have been driven mad by less. Ken Chowder, uh, who directed a famous documentary in 2000 about Brown, will write an essay called The Father of American Terrorism, in which he states that Brown's financial dreams uh, were, quote, an obsession of his. Chowder writes, quote, Perhaps it was this long string of failures that created the revolutionary who burst into the American scene in 1856, end quote. And in the mid-20th uh, century, you actually see some Marxist historians who kind of like this idea that basically Brown is the product of the failure of American capitalism, right? This wool business has been crushed by the swings in the market. And so maybe we should read the raid at Harper's Ferry as partially the class warfare of this proletarian vanguard taking out a form of class warfare on the plantation class. But a lot of the more modern historians have really ripped to shreds this idea that Brown was driven to Harper's Ferry by this bleak and sad period of his life. After all, right, the Panic of 1837 is like the Great Depression of the 19th century. Millions of Americans will fall on desperately hard times, not just John Brown, and almost none of them will turn into violent guerrillas who will start anti-slavery raids on federal armories. Lots of Americans, right, experience lots of suicide. does not mean that the guy is crazy. Lots of Americans also lose a terrifying number of children at young ages. It's hard to draw a direct link between those events and the attacks that Brown later launches. But to me, part of the reason this sort of jokerified origin story is both so potent and so persistent is because I think it speaks to the larger and much more broadly accepted view, I think even by some of Brown's admirers, that he had to be, you know, at least at some level, simply mentally off, something maybe close to crazy. Because that idea hangs over a lot of the writing on Brown, even from historians who will say, look, I'm not calling him insane, but, you know... I mean, you read a guy from almost 100 years ago like Robert Penn Warren. This is a a celebrated American novelist who will win the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. And Penn Warren, I mean, he comes pretty close to characterizing Brown as essentially a basket case. To Penn Warren, Brown is a bad businessman, a bad father, a bad husband. He will point out accurately that Brown will abandon his family on multiple occasions for these quixotic missions in Kansas and Harper's Ferry. Penn Warren will characterize Brown as pig-headed and stubborn and emphasize that he did all these rash things, like killing civilians, which we will discuss at length in episodes two and three, but that are in some ways hard to square with this idea of Brown as a rational actor. Right, One narrative you see a lot about Brown after his death is that he was sort of like this Columbine-style school shooter, right? The, you probably, if you know anything about Brown, you've seen this archetype floated. It's that of the trouble and possibly mentally ill man who did unspeakable things to his enemies, even if we want to recognize that that was on the cause of justice, of, of defeating slavery. Penn Warren will write, quote, Certainly John Brown was not normal, 
There was his egotism, his conviction of being an instrument of providence, his delusions of grandeur, his intolerance, his merciless ambition, and the element of religious fanaticism which worked regularly as a device of self-justification. All of these things made up an intensity of nature which appeared, beyond a doubt, abnormal, end quote. And I actually don't think you have to be a sympathizer with the Confederate cause, as Penn Warren is at this point of his life, though he'll later shift on that. But I don't think you have to think that to wonder about the mental stability of a man who essentially declares war on the U.S. government with like about 20 guys. You get a guy like the popular historian Tony Horowitz, who is writing in the aftermath of 9-11, and he'll absolutely play with the idea that Brown had at least a couple screws loose. I mean, I'll just say Horowitz's book, Confederates in the Attic, is truly one of my all-time favorite journalistic accounts of the contemporary impact of history. But Horowitz's biography of Brown, Midnight Rising, will entertain the idea that Brown is like a 19th century version of Osama bin Laden. I mean, he will even refer to Harper's Ferry as a, quote, Al-Qaeda prequel. In some interviews I've read, Horowitz will say Brown is erratic and describe his behavior as, quote, unbalanced. And it's a hard idea to argue with in many respects, right? Unlike Penn Warren, Horowitz is obviously much more sympathetic to Brown's ultimate goals and is certainly glad that Brown helped start the end of slavery. But Horowitz and many other, even contemporary historians, will essentially treat John Brown as someone who was maybe essentially suicidal, noble in his ambitions maybe, but ultimately quite flawed and perhaps willing to intentionally blow himself up like a suicide bomber. This is particularly not an uncommon approach among the Lincoln biographers who sort of, I think it's fair to say, see Brown as kind of a sideshow in the fight to end slavery. Alan C. Guelzo, who was a history professor at Princeton University and Gettysburg College, will literally compare John Brown to terrorist groups like Hamas and Hezbollah. Gueslo writes, quote, He yearned for the act of ultimate submission, of death and martyrdom. This is also how we ignored Islamic terrorism. Brown's unslakable thirst for violence and his rage at the modern belongs besides the anarchists whose reign of assassinations followed Brown in Europe and America and besides Hamas and Hezbollah today. End quote. But then someone like the historian Louis DeCaro Jr. or David Reynolds will come along and they'll say that people like Penn Warren and Horowitz and Gueslow are looking at this completely the wrong way. Because you know how after someone shoots up a school or whatever and the media goes out and interviews his neighbors and they'll be like, oh, yeah, that guy, weird guy, certainly off, maybe a little crazy. That is also what journalists will do after John Brown starts killing people and invading federal armories. And a lot of them find people who are certainly willing to say, you know, oh, yeah, that guy, he was nuts. And then this becomes baked into the historical record about John Brown. But what if the people you're interviewing, as basically all these people in the story are because of the time they lived on, what if all these people are essentially white supremacists? How much then should we really give to their pronouncements that John Brown was crazy. So for historians like DeCaro Jr. or David Reynolds, the main problem with the historians that see Brown as crazy is that they are still relying way too heavily on these kinds of accounts and on 150 years of propaganda about Brown that was literally written in many cases 
by the slave-supporting South and white supremacists in their aftermath who still fundamentally hated black people. And these historians will say, how can you possibly trust those accounts of Brown? Some of the even more sympathetic historians to Brown will argue that he launched his raid on Harper's Ferry in 1859, knowing it was doomed to failure and hoping still that it would kill enough people to bring down slavery. And what DeCaro and Reynolds will say is that this is absolute rubbish and totally misunderstands what John Brown was trying to do. And the attempts to compare him to Hezbollah and Hamas, who intentionally kill civilians, is just completely misunderstanding this entire story. I mean, DeCaro will go as far as to say, I mean, this kind of blew my mind when I read it. I hadn't come across this until I got into this project. But this historian DeCaro will essentially say that Brown doesn't even really have violent intentions at Harper's Ferry, but was essentially trying to just start the Underground Railroad on a much bigger scale and take as many slaves to their freedom as possible with as few civilian casualties as possible. DeCaro will go as far as to argue that Harper's Ferry, in fact, reflects John Brown's peaceful intentions, his desire for peace, that because by trying to destabilize and destroy slavery, as John Brown did, what he was ultimately trying to do was avoid a far bloodier confrontation than what we ultimately get in the Civil War. And then really around the same time, you have this Princeton historian um, who is arguing that this is wrong and that Brown is essentially, you know, 19th century abolitionist Hamas. And I will say that Although my personal sympathies are much more with the sympathetic Brown historians, the ones that regard him as ultimately doing what he thought was best for good reason to to help free the slaves. DeCaro, for instance, will write that Brown is not a terrorist and should not be considered a terrorist. And I admire DeCaro tremendously. I think he's maybe the most careful and diligent of all the Brown biographers. But to me, as much as I admire this guy, I think it's quite hard to define Brown as not a terrorist. I mean, the dictionary definition of a terrorist is someone who commits political violence. And Brown is certainly willing to do that. I don't know how you dispute that. But that said, the idea that Brown did what he did simply because he was crazy or unbalanced also feels too oversimplified, too pat. And so the idea that he was motivated by bloodlust, by a desire to kill or in a form of sort of holy biblical retribution as opposed to simply trying to express his solidarity and compassion for the slaves, just seems wrong to me. I'm not a historian. You are here just stuck with one journalist uh, doing his best opinion uh, about, you know, this guy. I'll put some um, links to other historians you can read in our show notes. But you read John Brown's own explanations for what he did, and this will become a huge thing at his trial in the aftermath, when even Southern slaveholders will privately admire his conduct— And Brown's defenses for what he does are remarkably lucid, straightforward, even convincing. I mean, you do not have the 4chan-like ravings of someone who turned out to be a school shooter. You have someone who accurately and clearly saw the evils of slavery and was methodically working in the means he best saw fit to end it, even if he recognized that it might be bloody work. So, you know, he doesn't sound crazy to me at all. And yet, if John Brown was not crazy, which I think the evidence pretty clearly suggest that he was not, and yet he was also willing to go around killing people and invading federal armories, then I think we have to go back to the question I posed towards the beginning of the show, which is, what was it exactly that made John Brown so much different than everyone else around him? Why was it that he even handled the situation that we, with our modern views on race and our modern understanding of the evils of slavery, why 
did Brown still handle this situation likely so much differently than even we would have if we were put in the time machine and sent back to his era? And to me, this is where you really have to read the accounts of John Brown's friends and his fellow contemporaries to really try to get inside the head of the guy by listening to the words of the people who knew his thoughts best. And what they say overwhelmingly is that Brown was not looking for adventure out to glorify himself. To them, Brown was, you know, maybe a little more religious than they were, maybe a little bit more exacting in his disgust of swear words. But what they argue overwhelmingly is that Brown does what he's willing to do to end slavery because he, more than anyone else that they knew, could somehow keep in his head exactly how bad and how evil and how malicious slavery was. You all know Frederick Douglass, right? This is perhaps the most famous 19th century abolitionist, an escaped slave who suffered all kinds of literal torture and abuse, who would later write that slavery had broken him in, quote, mind, body, and spirit. And what boggles my mind is that even Frederick Douglass, this famous person who was abused by slavery itself, Frederick Douglass will himself marvel at what he calls John Brown's intense hatred of slavery and marvel at John Brown's capacity for hating slavery, even though Brown himself never lived through it. I mean, how much do you have to hate slavery for Frederick Douglass, who was beat and abused, to be impressed by your hatred of it? Douglass will write a Brown, quote, His zeal in the cause of my race was far greater than mine. It was as the burning sun to my taper light. Mine was bounded by time. His stretched away to the boundless shores of eternity. I could live for the slave, but he, meaning John Brown, could die for him, end quote. And to me, the most important thing here is the explanation Douglas will give of why it was that Brown hated slavery so much. Because what Douglas will suggest is essentially that Brown was willing to die for slavery, again, because he was unusually able to keep in his head how bad it actually was. Douglas writes, quote, He saw the evil, the evil of slavery, through no mist or haze, but in a light of infinite brightness, which left no line of its 10,000 horrors out of sight, end quote. Douglas's theory is essentially that because Brown actually understood how bad slavery was, he did things that everyone else regarded as completely crazy. And right, as I said, for decades, historians have been going back and forth, back and forth over whether Brown was in some ways nuts. And I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but what Douglas is saying is that maybe it's the rest of us that are fundamentally, morally, and mentally misshapen, right? Because if I send you back through that time machine and you come out the other end and are not willing to do what Brown did, maybe it's because you can't see and you can't understand the things that John Brown saw and understood and understood. Maybe if I'm not willing to shelter a runaway slave in my basement because I fear six months in prison, maybe that's because of the limits, the inadequacy of my mind, the deficiency of my compassion and my empathy. After spending most of their life in Ohio, Brown will move his family in the 1840s from Ohio to um, Springfield in Massachusetts. And he does this in part for reasons related to his wool business, but also because he's desperate to meet the luminaries of the abolitionist movement like Sojourner Truth, which is how uh, Frederick Douglass will learn of him. And so on a cold night in the winter of 1847, Frederick Douglass will visit the Brown family home in Springfield and meet Brown's family. 
Douglas will later write approvingly of how sparse Brown's home is. He says something like, it would be easier to describe what was not in the house than what was in it. The two will eat a hearty soup of beef, cabbage, and potatoes. This is a worker's meal. As Brown tries to figure out, you know, how much he can trust Douglas. Douglas will later say he's impressed by how in the Brown household, both the men and the women share in the housework equally. After hours of talking, Brown disappears, and he comes back to the dining room table with a map of the United States, which he then unfurls over the table. Brown will then point to the Appalachian Mountains and say that God placed those mountains there for his plan to liberate the slaves. Brown will say that he's going to use the mountains as the basis of a plan to stage little raids across various southern plantations and then retreat with freed slaves to create an ever-growing guerrilla army that will live off the mountains and fundamentally destabilize the slave system until it collapses. This is, of course, a wild plan by any standard, and Douglas will bring up a gazillion reasons why it's likely to get Brown killed. Brown has answers to Douglas's questions, and the two go back and forth, literally until three in the morning, Douglas will leave the meeting unconvinced by Brown's plan, but convinced in the righteousness of Brown himself. What Douglas will say, as I've just been describing, is that he will come away believing that Brown is willing to die for this cause for the following reason. According to Tony Horwitz's book, Midnight Rising, Douglas would soon write after meeting Brown, quote, Though a white gentleman, Brown is in sympathy a black man, and as deeply interested in our case as though his own soul had been pierced with the iron of slavery, end quote. Again, to many of his contemporaries, and even to many historians today, especially the ones who don't specialize in John Brown, Brown's actions where he burst onto the national stage will seem to just come out of nowhere. It appears to many people like this guy just arrives sort of Promethean-like on the Kansas prairie, in 1856 and starts killing people before launching this suicide mission in 1859 on Harper's Ferry. And what I think that impression really misses is how Brown literally spent more than a decade building toward this plan. This meeting that I just told you about with Douglas occurs in 1847. John Brown Jr., Brown's son, will say that he's already been thinking um, of Harper's Ferry by this point, you know, for over 10 years going back to the 1830s. But with no men at his disposal, no army to speak of at this point, Brown, the next year in 1848, will take something that I think we can regard as an intermediate step on the way to becoming this the guerrilla warrior that he's known to history as. Because Brown is going to uproot his family again to participate in this radical farming colony in upstate New York, hundreds of miles from anyone Brown's family had known or ever met. This farming colony will be called Timbuktu after the great African city. The idea here is the brainchild of a wealthy New York abolitionist named Garrett Smith. Garrett Smith donates hundreds of acres of land in a remote region of the Adirondack Mountains to free black farmers, trying to launch a radical experiment in racial integration and a form of utopian agrarianism. And the idea is... If we can get enough free black Americans together on their own land, then they can prove that they are able to be self-sufficient. 
And also by giving black Americans their own land, it will enable them to be able to vote in elections because in many states, you still need to have property to participate at any level in the electoral process. I do like to imagine what it would have been like to have been one of Brown's many kids. And, you know, one day dad comes home and says something like, you know, hey, pack up your things. We're moving yet again to this tiny, desolate land for a utopian racial radical integration experiment. We can't really tell you where it is or what we'll be doing, but promise it's going to be a great time. But in any event, you know, this really is a very remote part of the world. The abolitionist uh, Thomas Wentworth Higginson would visit North Elba, which is located uh, north of something called the Notch. The Notch is part of the wilderness deep in the northern Adirondack Mountains on the east side of, uh, of upstate New York. Higginson would write, quote, The Notch seems beyond the world. North Elba and its half dozen houses are beyond the Notch. There's a little wild mountain road which rises beyond North Elba. John Brown's house is not even on that road, but behind it and beyond it. You ride a mile or two. Faith takes you across a half-cleared field through the most difficult of wooded paths. And after a half-mile of forest, you come out upon a clearing. There is a little frame house, unpainted, set in a girdle of black stumps on a high hillside with forests on the north and west, end quote. Despite this natural beauty, this North Elba experiment is in some ways a complete and utter disaster for the Brown family. Timbuktu turns out to be situated on donated plots of land that are very inhospitable to agriculture. It becomes quickly clear that they cannot even grow corn up here. I have spent some winters in upstate New York It is bitterly cold, and yes, this is when I had home heating. They don't even have plaster on the walls of the Brown family home. They'll barely have enough food to eat some winters. At one point, Brown will get lost coming home alone at night during a blizzard. A passerby ignores his cries for help, and he almost uh, freezes to death, just barely making it out alive, uh, stumbling onto the porch of some neighbor. And yet, For all the challenges, Brown and his family really do put down roots here in a way that is kind of beautiful. Two of his children will uh, marry into the Thompson family, which is another large white family of abolitionists in the area. The historian Louis DeCaro Jr. would write that Brown would also become very close with many of the black settlers assisting them in their farming work and becoming close friends. There's actually uh, a ton of these sort of agrarian utopian communities that are springing up all over upstate New York during this part of the middle 19th century. Uh, For instance, there's one community where they practice polygamy. There's another one where they practice something called the water cure, which is this like pseudoscientific theory about trying to use cold water as a form of curing all mental and physical illnesses. The historian David Reynolds will write, that North Elba deserves to be thought of as being in a similar mold, the kind of thing, you know, that many of Brown's contemporaries would have regarded as, as downright crazy. Reynolds will write, quote, Brown's community in North Elba, like many of his other projects, was destined to fail economically, but it was a daring effort at interracial cooperation. If the 20-odd utopian communities in antebellum America tested all kinds of strange theories, about free love, about complex marriage, 
of the water cure, and so on, North Elba tested a theory that, for its day, was as bizarre as any of them. The theory that blacks and whites could live and work together on equal terms, end quote. North Elba is going to collapse, and the remnants of this project will be gone within a generation or two. And in large part, that's because the racist white farmers that surround this project are going to refuse to trade with it. And that makes it, on top of everything else they're already dealing with, just impossible for it to survive. But it really is Brown's not only just his first step out of this normal abolitionist life and into something else, but it really is what Brown regards as his home. Brown will become particularly close friends with a black man named Lyman Epps, a talented musician who will sing at Brown's funeral. After Brown's death in 1859, he will be buried in North Elba. W.E.B. Du Bois refers to it as Brown's, quote, northern stronghold. A lot of historians, including the Princeton guy I referred to earlier, have seen North Elba as evidence of Brown's willingness to do things that were rash and foolhardy and maybe, yes, even a little nuts. And yet the biographer Reynolds that I was just referring to and quoting will instead write the following uh, in the year uh, 2005. Reynolds writes, quote, North Elba was not an utter failure. It would become Exhibit A in the defense of John Brown among blacks, from Frederick Douglass through W.E.B. Du Bois to the civil rights leaders of the late 20th century. It established a model for racial togetherness that even today is rarely achieved in America. Because of this, North Elba became John Brown's favorite place. For him, North Elba was home. In death, as in life, Brown was a North Elban, end quote. And yet, for all the promise that this place holds for Brown, and as much as he truly loves it, he is still at this point going back and forth between North Elba and Springfield, trying to deal with his wool business while also trying to help the abolitionist cause, while also trying to help a family that is sinking into deep and desperate poverty. In 1850, Congress is going to pass something called the Fugitive Slave Act. You might remember it from high school history class or whatever. The law strengthens existing slave codes and forces northern officials to cooperate with southern slaveholders and slave catchers under very strict penalties and fines. Brown, of course, is livid about this. He will eventually write to his wife that the law is more effective at creating abolitionists than all the lectures from abolitionists that they attended over the course of their lives. Brown will begin to organize the freed black and escaped slaves of Springfield, men as well as women, into this racially integrated group called the League of the Gileadites, which functions as a sort of armed mutual aid group. Forty-four black men will sign the treatise of this new group, which includes instructions on how to use a lasso to uh, catch a slave catcher, instructions on how to detonate gunpowder in a courtroom to get a slave out and, and make a quick escape. Brown makes a point in the treatise to welcome all groups of people including women, as I said. Brown was a big supporter of the suffragettes in Massachusetts. Reynolds will write, quote, This was a first in American history, a white person's detailed strategy for preemptive armed warfare to be waged by blacks against pro-slavery forces. Brown's plan was revolutionary at every step, end quote. And if we go back to that Marvel movie analogy, that superhero film idea that I've been talking about, to me, this is like the scene where the superhero or supervillain begins to test out his new skill set for the first time. The federal government has just passed a law saying 
you will not do this. And Brown appealing to a higher moral authority as he does when he's caught at Harper's Ferry will already defy that and argue that this paramilitary organization that he set up is justified by essentially the golden rule. The stakes here end up proving kind of low because there's not a ton of slave catcher activity in Springfield, although it is true that after the league forms, not a single black person will be taken from Springfield back into slavery. But the same is actually not true of the nearby city of Boston because there's this crucial nationwide event that happens in 1854. And this is the moment that, to me at least, seems to be the last straw or one of the last straws for Brown the thing that will give him the final shove off the platform of a normal life, admittedly weird as it already was, and into the life of a guerrilla warrior. In 1854, a 20-year-old escaped slave named Anthony Burns will be arrested by U.S. Marshals about a month after escaping slavery and making it north from Virginia. And this is going to fast become a national scandal that tests the limits of the Fugitive Slave Act because even though there aren't that many avowed abolitionists in the North at this time, most people in the North sure do not want Southern slave catchers rampaging through their Northern cities and arresting their workers and trampling over their law enforcement. After a riot breaks out trying to break Burns out of jail, President Franklin Pierce is going to order U.S. Marines into the city of Boston to make sure that this 20-year-old escaped slave, this one guy, this kid really, is actually sent back into slavery. And when he makes it back to slavery, Burns is going to be mercilessly tortured. Burns will be put in a small cell and handcuffed and manacled for the better part of his imprisonment and only given access to contaminated water and disgusting food. In his history of what happens to Anthony Burns, Charles Emery Stevens writes, quote, The torture which he suffered in consequence was excruciating. The grip of the irons impeded the circulation of his blood, made hot and rapid by the stifling atmosphere which caused his feet to swell enormously. The fetters, fetters meaning chains, prevented him from removing his clothing by day or night, and no one came to help him. The indecency resulting from such a condition is too revolting for description or even thought. Burns' only means of quenching his thirst was the nauseating contents of a pail that was replenished only once or twice a week. Living under such an accumulation of atrocities, Burns at length fell seriously ill, end quote. At the time this is all happening, John Brown is still stuck in New York, dealing with a lawsuit related to his wool business. The lawsuits related to this seem to stretch on forever and delay Brown's plans. But still, The story of Anthony Burns will eat at him. What would it mean to absorb the story of Anthony Burns, the story you just heard? As Frederick Douglass said that John Brown did, unable to minimize its horrors or see them outside anything but their true, unvarnished light. We're told that the news of Burns' arrest and the fact that he's being taken back into slavery will make Brown physically uncomfortable. He's fidgety, and he's anxious, and he's quite literally incapable of sitting still. Brown will begin literally pacing back and forth around his lawyer's office, and one of Brown's biographers, James Redpath, will write of this moment, quote, Brown suddenly turned to his counsel and said, I am going to Boston. 
Going to Boston, said the astonished lawyer. Why do you want to go to Boston? Brown continued walking vigorously and replied, Anthony Burns must be released or I will die in the attempt, end quote. Eventually, Brown's lawyers are able to slowly talk him down and convince him that it would be madness to leave this lawsuit and go, you know, hours away to do something that's already done. But this is really going to be the last time that Brown will stay on the sidelines. I mean, the story of Anthony Burns is just going to make Brown apoplectic. And I guess my question is, how could it not drive someone mad? Thank you so, so much for tuning into our first episode on Captain John Brown in our series here at American Carnage. We are truly grateful. Four of the five episodes are already uh, available for free on our Patreon at American Carnage. Um, You can go find us there. We will also be offering and would be truly grateful if you're able to help us recoup costs for books and other expenses, audio equipment. If you're able to sign up for just tossing five bucks our way on our Patreon site, that will also get you access to exclusive um, audio content that we'll be releasing, bonus episodes, as well as interviews with historians. And it will also allow you to help us um, determine what our next American Carnage series or who our next American Carnage series will be about. So go check that out. Lastly, a huge, huge thanks to our audio uh, editor, wizard extraordinaire, Sophia Curzius, um, without whom this would not have at all been possible. Thank you, Sophia. And um, yeah, until next time. Thanks again. John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave. His soul is marching on. The glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His soul is marching on. He's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. He's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. He's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. His soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His soul is marching on.